Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Happy New Year. Yeah, good. Uh, I'm fortunate to uh, be able to give the sermon on our last joint service before we go back to our two-service format. Um, I hope you have enjoyed our time together. I know that staff certainly has. Um, so now we're starting a new sermon series for the new year, and it's all about embracing our name, Tulare Community Church, embracing our name. Do you like your name? Your name? You like it? Yeah. And names are kind of interesting things, right? They're, they're given to us. We don't, we don't choose them, and they have some weight to them. Uh, my father-in-law wanted to name my future bride Billy Sue. Got to be honest, I don't know if I would have married her if her name were Billy Sue. Right, so names kind of matter, right? We can have even a sort of visceral reaction to them. Uh, But on the other hand, they're also kind of arbitrary too, right? So my first name is Nathan. My middle name is Shane. And so people will often ask me, well, why do you go by your middle name? And I have found that the answer that I give is always wildly unsatisfying. Because there's not a good one. It's just, um, my parents called me Shane. They always called me Shane. That was their intention. But they just kind of liked the sound of Nathan Shane better than Shane Nathan. You know, they liked the initials of NSM better than SNM. Yeah, kind of arbitrary, right? But, but here's the other thing, though. My wife will sometimes say to me, eh, you're not a Nathan. Huh, that's interesting, right? In some way, we live into our name. Well, I, I don't know if you like the name Tulare Community Church. I don't know if you've ever really thought about it one way or another. Maybe it's just sort of arbitrary to you, or maybe we approach this in a sort of Shakespearean way, right? arose by any other name, but there is intentionality behind the name. There's meaning to the name. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the good intention behind our name and challenging ourselves to live into it, to embrace our name. And so we're going to be looking at each facet of the name. We're going to be breaking it down. So this morning, we're going to be looking at church. Why church? What's a church? And then we're going to be looking at community, that we are a church community, but we're also a church in a community, and we'll be looking at how that interacts, how that shapes, what the balance of that is. And then lastly, we're going to be looking at Tulare. We are a regional church. We are in a particular place, in a particular time in human history, for a reason. But before we get into any of that, let's go before our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we gather in this place knowing that we need to hear from you. We need to be reminded of the truth of your words. May we stand firm in you, keep our feet from stumbling, keep our souls from wavering. May we be found be a faithful and pure bride for your glory and in your name, I pray. Amen. 
Uh, well, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. This is going to be our primary text for this morning. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. This is what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Church. Why church? Why do we use that word? Uh, Why not uh, temple? Kind of a grander word. Right? Upon this rock, I will build my temple. That's got some heft to it, doesn't it? It's sort of big, imposing, majestic. And you could even point to scripture to support it. Right? Right? We, our bodies, are the temple of the Lord. The Holy Spirit indwells in us. And collectively, we make up the temple. We have that from Scripture. So uh, Ephesians says this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So why not temple? Why not Tulare Community Temple? Well, who knows what the word Jesus used in Aramaic, but Matthew writing here in the spirit translates his words into Greek. And he chooses a word that he thinks best captures what Jesus was saying. And the word is ecclesia. That's the Greek word. And that is the word that you will predominantly find uh, translated as church in your English Bible. Ecclesia. And it's derived from a word that means to call out. It's a convocation. An assembly. A congregation, that's what it means. Upon this rock, I will build my congregation. That has a kind of different feel to it, doesn't it? And if he said temple, you might be tempted to think building. Jesus is making it pretty clear. He's not talking about a building. He's talking about people. The church is not the building. It's the people. We've heard that. There's reasons for saying that. The church is not the building, it's the people. But not all people. Not everyone's the church. So what kind of people? The best looking people. Uh, The most talented people. The wealthiest people. You know, people of a certain class. People of a certain ethnicity. No, none of that. 
The church that Jesus built starts with and is defined by profession. The church is an assembly of people who profess Christ as Lord. That's the church. You can be among the church. You, know, you can sit there on Sunday mornings. You can attend our midweek gatherings. You can even participate in our outreaches and our ministries. You can be up here singing and dancing and playing an instrument, but if you don't profess Christ as Lord, you're not the church. The church is an assembly of people who believe something very specific about Jesus of Nazareth. Fundamentally, church is a truth claim. It's about doctrine. And I know to our modern sensibilities, that's not a word we like very much. Doctrine, you know, when that, that usually comes to mind, you know, secondary and tertiary theological issues. And when we think about doctrine, it's like, oh, that's just the stuff that we squabble over and doesn't really matter and really detracts from all the good that churches do. And churches do a lot of good. So do a lot of other organizations. You know, the church really does need to be more than just another 501c3. You know, um, uh, after college, I uh, lived in Idaho, and I had a job at a telecommunications company. And it was different from my current job because right now I'm surrounded by like-minded people. They're all Christians. At, at this place, you had some Christians, you had some atheists, you had Mormons and lapsed Mormons. And so religious conversations sometimes came up. And this one gal said, I believe in God, but I'm against organized religion. And I said to her, so you're in favor of disorganized religion? Well, no. I'm not objecting to the fact that we meet at a designated time in a designated place in a coordinated fashion. No. What's really the problem? Well, they're against organized thought. That's still a kind of silly sentence, but it's a little bit more accurate. See, the problem that she had and so many people have is that we have doctrine. They dislike that the church says things. We make truth claims. We say things about the nature of God. We say things about the nature of man. We say things about the nature of reality. We say things about morality, right and wrong. We say what the problem is and what the solution is. What's objectionable is that we profess. A lot of people would just rather have some kind of vague spirituality some ill-defined higher power, some nebulous God. Because that's comforting. Makes you feel good. But makes absolutely no demands on you. Well, see, we like that. That's better. Keep it ill-defined. Keep it fuzzy. Because then you can still have purpose and meaning in your life. You can feel good. But have no moral obligation or religious duty. And the church does not allow for that. 
No. God, in his mercy, reveals himself to us. And we profess what he has revealed. But, you know, even for Christians, uh, we can find this uh, difficult sometimes. You know, sometimes even Christians can find our own doctrine distasteful. Scripture says this, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now you'll notice that this stems from an internal desire. Their own desires, what they want to hear. They don't like Christian doctrine. They don't want it to be true. And we could say, well, yeah, well, that's not us. I mean, clearly we're Christians because we have believed in the message of salvation. Clearly we're Christians because we have accepted the doctrine of Christianity as true. Fair enough. But the thing is, we have a sin nature. You know, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. He's working on us. He's overcoming our sin nature. But there's a battle there. There's a tension there. We see that in all other aspects of our lives. We see that battle, right? I know the good I'm supposed to do. That doesn't mean I do it. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. So this battle and this tension, it's not just about our behavior. It's also about our beliefs. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you love Christian doctrine. You might accept it. Maybe sort of begrudgingly. Maybe being a little bit embarrassed by it. You can desire something else. Just, I wish it were different. I wish I could change it. And the world will always feed into that. Um, I have a clip I want to show you. It's a really interesting exchange that was in the news lately. So go ahead and take a look at this. And that is in the piece that I referred to that you wrote for a publication called Resurgent. You wrote, Muslim, quote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. End of quote. Do you believe, do you believe that that statement is Islamophobic? Absolutely not, Senator. I'm a Christian. And I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith. Uh, that post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. And Again, I apologize. I do Forgive me. I, we just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe that people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view? Again, Senator, I'm a Christian, and I wrote that piece. Well, what does that say? The statement of faith. Of Wheaton I God. understand that. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple of million. Are you suggesting that all of those people stand condemned? What about Jews? They stand condemned too. Senator, I'm a Christian. I, I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion. But there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people 
why not Christians are going to be condemned? Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that, that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. And do you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they've rejected Jesus Christ the Son and they stand condemned? Do you think that's respectful of other religions? Senator, I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly with regard to the centrality of Jesus Christ and salvation. I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee um, is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. I will vote no. Senator Gardner. Oh boy, I don't want to be Islamophobic. That doesn't sound good. I don't want to be bigoted or exclusive. That doesn't seem nice. Aren't Christians supposed to be nice? And yeah, calling people condemned, that's harsh. That doesn't seem loving. Aren't Christians supposed to be loving? Okay. What does our doctrine say? John chapter 3 verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Well, so far so good. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. You know, Muslims and Christians say contradictory things about the nature of Jesus. We say contradictory things about God's one and only Son. We can't both be right. Truth is exclusive. That's its nature. If 2 plus 2 is 4, it can't also be 5, or 6, or 7, or 8. 9 is right out. There's an infinite number of wrong answers. There's only one right one. Truth is exclusive. That's its nature. Jesus says these words, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus answered... I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an exclusive statement. It is a truth claim. See, Bernie Sanders can be inclusive about all religions because he thinks they're all wrong. And one wrong answer is not better or superior to another wrong answer. And so then all doctrine is just sort of unnecessary and it just creates division and conflict which is true unless one of them's right you know we can be tempted to minimize our doctrine to highlight all the good things that we do 
but nothing the church does matters in the end if we're not offering truth. We could feed people on Thanksgiving. That's nice. But they'll be hungry later. And we could throw uh, Christmas parties at Roosevelt Elementary School. I'm sure that's a fun day. And then what? Now we could um, help students get their diploma. So, you think a piece of paper is going to matter in the end? You know, I loved what Al Oliver said last week when he was talking about the problem of homelessness. He said, the, the problem is not food. We have food. The problem is not shelter. We have shelter. The problem is doctrine. And that's what the church offers the world. We are pointing to the way and the truth and the life. We feed people to point them to the bread of life. We love people and bless people as a manifestation of the truth of the gospel. We teach and train and minister to people so that they will have knowledge of the truth that sets them free. If the church is just a nonprofit, then it doesn't really profit anyone in the end. The church starts with and is defined by profession. That's what we gather here to do. Church services are liturgies of profession. We gather together and we sing songs about God, who he is, what he's done, reminding ourselves of who he is, defining him. We gather together and we pray. That is a proclamation for those around us and ourselves about who God is, that he's omnipotent, that he's omniscient, that he's omnipresent, that he hears us, that he has power, that he cares. And we gather together and we give of our tithes and our offerings. That is a proclamation to each other and ourselves about who God is, that every good gift comes from him that our security is only found in him, that he's faithful, that he's trustworthy. And we listen to messages, we listen to sermons proclaiming the word of God, reminding us of who God is and what he's done, reminding us of the truth of the gospel. And we live this out in fellowship with one another, right? We share Christ with one another, ministering to one another proclaiming to one another, encouraging, sustaining, holding each other accountable so that we always remember the truth of our claims. And we need that, just like the world needs that. We are prone to wander. We are prone to turn to other doctrines, things that we think will satisfy us better but aren't true. Hebrews says this, chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching, right? Don't cease meeting together. We need this. You know, sometimes we can think, I'm the church. Sometimes we even say that, you're the church. 
No, we're the church. Ecclesia. It's an assembly. Standing off by yourself is not an assembly. And we need to be dedicated to this gathering. We need to be devoted to church with religious fervor. You know, I think that's another word that uh, we don't like much nowadays. Religious. It sounds legalistic or something. Cold. It's just sort of empty discipline. But church is a religious enterprise. Not cold or empty, but with discipline. You need to be religiously faithful to this. Because God has told us in his word, we need it. We have itching ears. We have hearts that seek other doctrine. Don't think that we're just naturally inclined to love Christian doctrine. And the current of the world will always push us away from God and his truth. So if you're not actively swimming toward him, if you're not actively pursuing him, you are drifting away. The church is a bulwark against falsehoods. And it's the advancement of truth, both for the world and ourselves. So throughout this uh, series, we're going to be talking about all the things that the church does, right? How it helps us, how it shapes us, how we grow through that, and even grow to love our doctrine, right? Not just accept it kind of begrudgingly, but actually love it. Because as we become more like Christ, we begin to value what he values and think like he thinks. So we grow in that way. And we're also going to be looking at how the church impacts community, evangelizes, meets the needs of in tangible and important ways. But the church starts with and is defined by profession. We're not here at Tulare Community Church because it's a nice nonprofit. We're not here because it's a hip social club. We're not here because it has uh, free babysitting. We're not here because it uh, is an influential lobbying group. No. We're here because of a shared answer to a question that Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Everything hinges on that. And everything we do flows from that. And we're not a church if we're not embracing that. Let's play. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.